Would you remain standing as I read these words from John 14, 15 through 17, as well as 25 and 26. These are the words of Jesus. If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and it doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is, the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's great to see everybody here today. Thank you for coming. And if you're joining us online, we thank you for doing that and uh, uh, viewing in today. Uh, Glad that you are all here at 930 uh, to celebrate Jesus with us. We are in um, a series called The Third Person. And one of the things we are looking at today is uh, John's accounting of what happened in the last hours that Jesus was with his disciples. We we get the most information actually about that last night that they had together from John than we do any other gospel. Um, The other gospels will talk about communion that we celebrated earlier. John never talks about communion. He talks about a whole host of other things, though, and he gives us the words that Jesus shared with his disciples that last night, and there was a lot of those kind of words that had to do with the fact that Jesus would be leaving, would be leaving. And he he drops this information on his disciples, and and alarm bells go off in their heads, like, you're leaving? Uh, You can't do that. Uh, Peter says this, even if you leave, I will go, I will follow you everywhere. Anywhere you go, I'm going to go, even if it costs me my life. Jesus says, really, really, Peter. Thomas pops up and he's really confused. He says, "Uh, how can we follow you if we don't know where you're going? Philip pops up and says, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And to Jesus Uh, To Philip, Jesus says, don't you know me? Don't you know me yet? These these guys have been with Jesus three years. That's what a stab in the gut that is from Jesus. Don't you know me? And it was apparent that even after having been with Jesus all of that time, they really didn't know who was in front of them. And that's a big problem because these are the guys that Jesus has touched on the shoulder to be his agents in the world when he's gone, but they don't know him. And so he gives them a little hope. In the, the passage that we just read, he says, you know what, I'm going to ask God and he's going to send another advocate, another counselor to be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all these things 
He will remind you of all of these things that you seem to be so clueless about right now. And the assurance in Jesus' words is, God's Spirit will come to you to be with you. Now, the way Jesus frames God's Spirit is something that would have been new to them. He's speaking in ways that they've really never heard before. First, he says that the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not an it, it's a he. He will do this. He will do it. In him will we'll live these. He will remind you. He will teach you. It's a he. It's a person. This is not just divine energy. This is not just a force that we tap into. But this is a real person that when Jesus leaves, he will send from the Father this third person. That is God himself. Secondly, Jesus says that this person will be coming and he will be leaving. He says in, in chapter 16, unless I go, then he cannot come. And even though he's leaving, Jesus says this. It's very interesting. He says, I will come to you. The implication is somehow, even though he's leaving, somebody's going to come that will make it so that the disciples can see Jesus even though he's not present in his bodily form. He will be gone, but his presence will remain, and it, it is because of the Spirit coming into the world and into their lives. The third thing that we kind of get from what Jesus says is that this person is another something. Another so, and I, I use the word something uh, because uh, the word in the ESV is helper, but in every translation that you look at, that name that Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit is likely to be different. Uh, in, in the ESV and the NASV, it's a helper. In the NIV, it's counselor. In the, in the message, it's friend. In the ASV and the King James Version, it's comforter. And then in the NLT that we read earlier, it's advocate. And each of those, whenever there's a word that translators have a hard time of really uh, agreeing on, what it means is that the Greek word is so nuanced and so complex that there's no one word in our English that fully captures it. And you get that sense here. The word behind Holy Spirit is the word paraclete. It's made up of two Greek words. One is para, which uh, if you think of paralegal or paramedic, what is that? It's somebody who comes alongside uh, the, the people in that, those industries to help, right? So para means to come alongside and help. Uh, but kaleo is the second word, and kaleo means to call or to direct somebody. And you may have heard those ideas before, but here's what I want you to, to think about that those ideas are in direct conflict with each other. Kaleo means to call out, to direct. It's very type A language. It's forceful. It's active. It's a, it's a CEO who is pointing uh, and moving somebody else and, and some organization to a goal. It's pressing towards something. That's what the word means. On the other hand, para is to come alongside. And that's very different, right? That's sympathy. That's empathy. That's somebody coming alongside you and forming a relationship. That's walking in somebody else's shoes. And 
one side of the word, as you can see, is a, is a great challenge, but the other side of the word is great support and comfort. And now maybe you can see why this word is so hard to nail down in our English language. And so the NIV, for what it says, is counselor. And that, that's not off by much as long as you see that it's not a counselor in a therapy session. Instead, it's a counselor in a courtroom, a counselor at law. We could say it this way, it's a defense attorney. And, and when you're in a court of law and you have a defense attorney, that's somebody who is sympathetically on your side, but it's also someone that's not just there to hold your hand either. They may have very hard things to say to you, but it's always with the goal of helping your case and advancing your cause before the judge or before the jury. And, and the defense attorney doesn't just speak to you, does he or she? No, no, no. They, they also speak to the powers in the court. They speak to the judge. They speak to the jury about you. And so you can see why advocate is a good word. And maybe the NLT is on track too. And Jesus says that this person who comes when he leaves is coming to be by your side to defend you, to be your advocate. Now, there's something else that we need to see before we, and it's what we'll spend all, uh, the rest of the time on today. This, uh, Jesus calls this person who is to come another advocate, another helper, another counselor. Wait, wait a minute. That would imply that there's a first one, and this one is the second one. And so, what's going on here? The only other time in the whole New Testament where this word paraclete is used is 1 John chapter 2. And in that text, John writes this, my children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have, what's the word? An advocate with the Father. And who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the, whole, the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the first advocate. And he's telling his disciples that the Spirit will be the second advocate. And this word advocate is actually the key to understanding them both. It's the key to understanding what Jesus has done for us, and it's also the key to understanding what the Spirit now does for us that is available to us. And it explains Jesus' work on the cross, and it explains Jesus, the Spirit's work in our hearts. And so the, the sermon today is just this, okay? Here it is. Unless you know the first advocate, you won't understand the work of the second. Unless you know the first advocate, you will never understand the work of the second advocate. So we need to spend some time about what advocate means and what it tells us about what Jesus did on the cross. Now, if I were to ask you uh, that question, why did Jesus die on the cross? Um, what would come to your mind? Probably, very simply, it would be something like this. Well, Jesus came and died on the cross to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice to God in my place so that I could be forgiven of sin. Did anybody uh, have anything remotely close to that? If so, yes. 
Good job, good job. Give yourselves a hand. All right, okay. But here's what advocate tells us. Advocate tells us that there's more to it than that. Advocate tells us first that there has to be a bar of justice somewhere. The, the very fact that Jesus is telling us that we need somebody to stand up and to be by our side and to defend us tells us that at some point there is a universal divine court that we will all have to stand up in and give an account of our lives. There is a bar somewhere. Jesus is affirming it. And this bar, he's, he, what he's saying is, it has been set ho- so high that no matter how hard you try, you're not going to be able to reach it. And at the end of time, you're going to need somebody to stand by your side and argue your case. Here's the second thing it tells us, that only Jesus is that person to stand by our side. Only Jesus can help. When we get to that court We won't need an example of moral behavior. We won't need somebody who comes alongside us just to morally support us and be a loving, encouraging figure. Is Jesus those things? Absolutely. But that's not what we'll need right then in front of God in that divine court. What we will need is a true advocate. We will need somebody on our side. We will need somebody speaking for us. And here's what I know about an advocate, that when you need one, you really need one. I told you a story um, that involved me last summer and uh, the police, and I didn't get to to finish that story, and uh, today is the perfect time to do so. So uh, if you weren't around, I'll bring you up to speed. I had called the police to my place uh, to, to assist in a certain matter, and any time that you have the police in front of you, they want to run your license. And so somebody, one of uh, the officer, ran my license, and uh, we're chit-chatting, and all of a sudden, I look up, and there's not one officer, there's three officers, and they're surrounding me, and the first officer gives me my license back and says, Mr. Drake, are you aware that there's a warrant out for your arrest? No. I'm not. Would you please tell me what's going on? He said, well, we're not really sure, but we're going to be calling the county that issued the warrant, and if they choose to extradite you today, then you will be coming with us. Oh, okay. This is no joke. And my mind starts reeling, like, what could this be? What could this possibly be? The the officer that calls the county comes back, and he said, good news, they don't want to extradite you. Uh, have a nice day, and he hands my license back to me, and they leave, and I was like, whoa, 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 wait, what do I do about this warrant? They said, well, good luck with that, I don't, we don't know, it's not our warrant, and so I spent the whole day trying to track this thing down, like, where did this come from? At the end of the day, I find myself on the phone with a police chief uh, in a town not too far west from here, and He says, what's your name? And I said, Dusty Drake. And I have apparently a warrant out for my arrest in your county. And uh, go figure, uh, people, courthouses, people in counties aren't used to having people call in and say, hey, can you tell me about my warrant? Um, I never would have guessed that. But he says, 
what's your license number again? What's your date of birth? What's your social security number? And I rattle all those things off. He says, and you've never lived in, and he mentions this town that's west of here. I said, never in my life have I lived there. I live in Fort Scott, Kansas. Long pause on the phone. He says, oh, I think I know what happened. He said, a few years back, there was actually a guy here in town. He drove a truck. He was a semi-truck driver. And his name was Dusty Drake. And he had some vehicles in his yard, and we wanted them moved. They were nuisance vehicles. We told him to move them. He never moved them. We wrote him a ticket. He never paid the ticket, so we issued a warrant. And he is moved. We don't know where he is. And apparently, when they populate, they put your and his name in, your information populated this warrant. I said, okay, well, that explains things, but what do I do now? How do I get rid of this thing? What happens? I, I post to him, like, because I was worried, like, what, what if I go out and uh, I, I get pulled over? Or, and, or what if I'm out on a, on, a, on a road and just minding my own business in my car and somebody, the policeman comes up, taps on the window, what's going on in there, right? What, what do you do? What do you... They're going to run my license, right? And so what do I say? And no kidding. The police chief says this to me. Mr. Drake, in that situation, I would advise you just to tell them that you're not him. Let me, let me get this straight. You're, okay. You're telling me to tell the officer that runs my license what every criminal ever would say, no, you got the wrong guy. That's what you're telling me here? Yeah, that's, that's all I can do for you. And I got off the phone, um, and I had to cross my fingers that that chief of police would go back to those records and would change them and populate the information that should have been there in the first place. He was the only advocate that I had. And when I needed one, man, did I need one. And so I crossed my fingers for about two weeks, and uh, two weeks later I have uh, one of my good friends uh, who's a policeman run my license, and I'm crossing my fingers that I'm not surrounded by, by policemen anymore, and uh, they run my license, and good news, the warrant is gone, and I'm a free man, I'm a free man, Right? I want you to take that idea, and I want you to go back to John, 1 John chapter 2. Here's, here's what 1 John says. He says, if anyone does sin, is there a question about that? I mean, you're going to sin, I'm going to sin, we are sinners, right? If anyone does sin, we will. Here's the good news. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, when you're accused before the cosmic bar of justice, what do you need? You don't need an assistant. You don't need a coach. You don't need someone just to listen. You don't just need an encourager. You need someone to appear on your behalf before God, and that's what Jesus has done. But we need to take it one more step because you can't just have somebody who steps beside you and throws your case at the mercy of the court. 
You can't have a lawyer who says, you know what, judge, my, there's no question my client did it, but, but look, otherwise he's a good guy. Could, could, you just, could you just let him off this time? That's not what the case that you want. Because that's like flipping a coin. And you've got to rely on the mercy of the judge, of the jury. You don't want that kind of case. Here's the kind of lawyer you want. You want someone with a case. You want this. Roll the video. Ms. Vito, please answer the question. Does the defense's case hold water? No. The defense is wrong. Are you sure? I'm positive. How could you be so sure? Because there is no way that these tire marks were made by a 64 Buick Skylark. These marks were made by a 1963 Pontiac Tempest. Objection, Your Honor. Can we clarify to the court whether the witness is stating opinion or fact? This is your opinion? It's a fact. I find it hard to believe that this kind of information could be ascertained simply by looking at a picture. Would you like me to explain? I would love to hear this. So would I. The car that made these two equal length tire marks had positive traction. Can't make those marks without positive traction, which was not available on the 64 Buick Skylark. And why not? What is positive traction? It's a limited slip differential which distributes power equally to both the right and left tires. The 64 Skylark had a regular differential, which anyone who's been stuck in the mud in Alabama knows you step on the gas, one tire spins, the other tire does nothing. That's right. Is that it? No, there's more. You see, when the left tire mark goes up on the curb and the right tire mark stays flat and even, mm -hmm. well, the 64 Skylark had a solid rear axle. So when the left tire would go up on the curb, the right tire would tilt out and ride along its edge. But that didn't happen here. The tire mark stayed flat and even. This car had an independent rear suspension. Now, in the 60s, there were only two other cars made in America that had positive traction and independent rear suspension and enough power to make these marks. One was the Corvette, which could never be confused with the Buick Skylark. The other had the same body length, height, width, weight, wheelbase, and wheel track as the 64 Skylark, and that was the 1963 Pontiac Tempest. And because both cars were made by GM, were both cars available in metallic mint green paint? They were. Thank you, Ms. Vito. No more questions. Thank you very, very much. You've been a lovely, lovely witness. Love that movie, right? Uh, by the way, I have spoiled the movie for you if you've never seen it. But in my defense, you've had 29 years to see it. So I don't feel too bad. There are two punks who are accused of murder, and they're going to go to jail for life, but they don't because their cousin Vinny had an airtight case. And that's the only way we don't go to jail for eternity, is to have somebody who stands beside us with an airtight case, and that's what Jesus has. And I love this because John tells us what that case is. He says that Jesus 
is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. There was mercy in what God did in sending Jesus to die for us. But when Jesus is beside us in that court and defends us, he will not plead for mercy. He won't do it. He doesn't have to because he will point to a payment that's already been made. John also says this, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us. It doesn't say that God will be merciful and give us another shot. It says that He will forgive us because He's faithful and just. To forgive, in other words, is the just thing to do. We could say it this way. To not forgive would be an unjust act. Now, how is that? The best way to get an acquittal is to prove to the court that your client must be acquitted under the law. The best way is to show that the law demands that your client go free. It doesn't matter in that case how the judge feels or how the jury feels. They are bound by the law. Those marks could never be made by a Buick Skylark, and it doesn't matter after that. And Jesus has this kind of case. What is it? It's It's this, God, these people sinned, and the law demands that they get death for that sin. But God, I died in their place. I lived a perfect life. I paid for those sins. Here's my blood. Those sins have been paid for completely. And so God, if you were to make these people pay for their sins when I've already paid for them, that would be unjust. It's unjust to exact two payments for the same sin. So God, I'm not asking for mercy. I'm asking for justice. And if Jesus' claims are true, that's an infallible case. It's airtight. And it's why John can write that our sins will be forgiven because the law demands Christianity. Following Jesus is the only way that gives you this kind of case before that divine court of God that we will all have to stand up in. If Jesus is your advocate, the law is no longer against you. Now the law is actually for you. If you're on your own, you're just a sinner with the law stacked up on the other side of you, and you are guilty. But in Jesus, the righteous one, you are perfect. You are just, you are beautiful, you are righteous, and there is no law against you. The the law is only for you. Why? Because you are lost in your advocate and all of those things have been accomplished in Him. He is those things, and so you look like those things as well. So the first job of the advocate is for Jesus, the first advocate, to stand up and say, God, look at what I've done. Now accept all of these people who have trusted in me. Accept them because of what I've done. And that brings us to the second advocate. And you're thinking, finally, I thought this was the whole Spirit on the Holy Spirit. We, we haven't even gotten there yet. But here's, here's the thing. You have to understand what the first advocate did for you. 
if you ever have a chance of understanding what the second does for you. The first advocate speaks to you for God. The second advocate speaks to you for you. That's the difference. The job of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is to take all of those things that the disciples themselves didn't quite grasp about Jesus and to teach and to remind them so that they would understand Jesus' saving work. And that's what He does for you and me. The Holy Spirit is like a floodlight. It's like a flashlight. There's no light in the world that's designed to shine on itself. A light always shines on something else. These lights that are hanging up here, they're shining on the stage. They're high, they're, they don't highlight themselves. You don't even know them. Notice them up there. They, they highlight what's going on here. And the Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit says it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I will shine the light on Jesus. I will show you what he did for you. I will remind you of what he did for you. And right here and now, through the Holy Spirit, you can see Christ, you can know his presence even better than the disciples knew him on that last night that they had together. I want you to imagine that you are a billionaire. And like any billionaire, you know, maybe you can afford all this stuff. You leave the house in the morning and you check your wallet and you have three $10 bills because that's what billionaires leave the house with. And you're doing that day what billionaires do. You're going to Walmart. And so you take your billionaire wallet to Walmart with the three $10 bills and you buy $10 worth of stuff and you take one of those $10 bills out and you pay for your stuff and now you have two $10 bills. And later in the day, you're again doing something that even that, that billionaires do and that is to gather at the post office and buy stamps. You need $10 of stamps because that's what billionaires do. And so you go in and you reach in your wallet because you need two and a half stamps and that's going to cost you 10 bucks. And you reach, you look in there and there's only one $10 bill. Wait a minute. There, I know there were three. Maybe, maybe two stuck together when I was at Walmart. Maybe I dropped one somewhere along the way. I just have one left. Let me ask you a question. You're a billionaire. Do you care about 10 bucks? Are you going to disrupt your day and say, oh, I need to retrace my steps to find $10 bill. I, I need to call the police. That's what I need to do. I need to call the police so they'll run my license and maybe there will be a warrant on my record. I don't know. I need to call the police to find this $10 bill. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do any of that. Why? Because you're a billionaire. You don't care about $10. This week, someone will criticize you. This week, you will choose the wrong thing and you will walk down the wrong path. This week, you will find out that something you bought isn't quite worth what you thought it was. This week, you will find that some investment will go down and not up. This week, someone will let you down. This week, somebody will stab you in the back. This week, something won't go the way you planned. Let me ask, what do you do when that happens? Because those are real losses. 
Losses of reputation, losses of wealth, losses of hopes, losses, losses of dreams, all lost. What do you do? In those circumstances, do you shake your fist at God? And I want to suggest to you that if you do that, you don't know how rich you really are in Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to remind you that you are. If you're not listening to your second advocate about your first advocate, then you forget. His job is to remind you of all that you have in Christ. That all of those things, really at the end of the day, don't matter. It's a $10 bill. Because you are wealthy beyond compare spiritually. Jesus has made the difference for everything else. It's the first advocate that makes the case before God about who you are. And it's the second advocate that reminds you that he did. It's the job of the second advocate to argue in the court of your heart, to make the case about who you really are when you think that you're not. And it's your job to listen to that. How do we do that? We listen when we read the Bible. We, we listen when we study. We listen as we come together as a community of believers and gather around in worship and prayer and communion. That's how we listen. Let the second advocate tell you over and over about the first. And no matter what happens, you will be able to say, it is well with my soul. I am rich because of what Jesus Now, if we need these advocates, then the only question is, how do I get them to represent me? How do I get these advocates to to stand beside me, both in the courtroom when I am in front of God and facing His divine justice, but, but also even now, as I'm not really sure who I am, and I want somebody to remind me of what Jesus has done for me and the relationship that I can have with God now because of it. There were people that were in our boat on the first day of the church. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2 and He started doing all of these amazing, amazing things. He started talking through the disciples in languages that they didn't didn't know and communicating to people that they had never been able to communicate before. It was a miracle. And all of these miracle things are going on. And Peter gets up and he preaches to all of the people that are gathered there. And he says this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ was sent by God and you put him on a cross. You killed him. It was by God's divine foreknowledge, but you killed him. And he is now Lord and Savior of your life. Why? Because even though you killed him, he rose again. He stepped out of the tomb three days later as Lord and faith. People who were listening were cut to the heart. They saw the Spirit around them, and they said, Peter, what do we do to get that Spirit around us, in us? Peter said, believe, repent, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how you get the Spirit in you. That's always been the case. 
You may have been coming to Community Christian Church for a while, maybe, maybe a long while, and maybe you've never made that decision. You see the Spirit working all around you in the lives of other people that you're sitting with, and you, you hear the stories about how God has changed their lives and, and how Jesus has made a difference. And you see the Spirit working all around you. Maybe your question today is, how do I get the Spirit that is around me in me? And the answer is exactly the same as it always has been. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Repent. Change your mind about your sin because you're a spiritual billionaire, right? And invite the Spirit into your life to walk with you in the waters of baptism. Forgiving your sin. Father, we thank you that it is the Spirit that stands beside us right now and tells us who Jesus is. That He has been our Savior and our Lord. And that He has the airtight case so that we can be right with God. That's His job, to remind us of all of those things. And so, Father, we invite the Spirit to do His work, to teach us, to remind us, to shine the light on Jesus so that we know Jesus more than ever. Father, maybe there's somebody in the room that has never taken that step to know Jesus. Would you help them to come to the place where they're able to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I want Him in my heart from now on. I want the Spirit in my life. Would you lead them to what they now need to do? Father, no matter who we are, help us to listen to where the Spirit is leading us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.